Hello, my name is Benjamin Irvin, and you're listening to the Journal of American History podcast for the winter of 2018 and 19. Our guest today is Dr. Jamie Petruska, whose article, A Tornado is Coming, Counterfeiting and Commercializing Weather Forecasts from the Gilded Age to the New Era, appears in the December 2018 issue of the Journal of American History. Jamie is an assistant professor of history at Rutgers University, New Brunswick. She holds a PhD from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Jamie specializes in the histories of culture, science, and technology in the modern United States. She is the author of Looking Forward, Prediction and Uncertainty in Modern America, published by the University of Chicago Press in 2017. Her research has garnered support from the American Council of Learned Societies, the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, and the Society for the History of Technology. Again, her article, which appears in this month's issue of the JAH, is entitled, A Tornado is Coming, Counterfeiting and Commercializing Weather Forecasts from the Gilded Age to the New Era. Welcome, Jamie. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So in any ordinary conversation, it might feel cliche to ask, but in your case, I have to make an exception. How's the weather in Clinton Township today? We've all bundled up in our winter coats for today, but there's no rain in the forecast, fortunately. Are you making that up to promote this podcast? A little bit, because I did not actually check the weather on my smartphone this morning. Jamie, how did you first become interested in the history of weather forecasting? I started to get interested in the history of weather forecasting doing my dissertation research, which focused on a culture of prediction in the late 19th or early 20th century United States. And a big part of that history is the history of weather forecasting. And so I began to look at the relationship between the National Weather Service and government weather science and the exciting world of private commercial forecasters and paying particular attention to the conflict between the two. And so my article on counterfeit weather forecasting really emerged from that broader research into weather forecasts and a broader culture of prediction. Now, your article, as you explained, focuses on the late 19th century, the Gilded Age, and this appears to have been a very critical moment in the history of meteorology. How are the practices of weather forecasting changing at the time? You're right that it's a really crucial period for weather forecasting. Of course, this is not the first time that people have attempted to predict the weather. So there's a much longer history of weather prediction from almanacs to making weather predictions based on observations of the natural world. There's a whole host of different methods for predicting future weather. But what's new in the late 19th century in the United States and also in Europe as well is that you have the advent of state weather services. And this was really the first time in the United States that you could open up the newspaper and find an official government weather forecast. And the reason that all of this worked was really because you had a combination of well-trained, disciplined weather observers, first in the U.S. Army and then in the U.S. Department of Agriculture, and you had the telegraph network. And late 19th century weather forecasting was really possible because of the simple fact that the telegraph traveled faster than the weather. So it's this combination of trained observers gathering local weather data in a kind of crowdsourcing project and combining that with a bureaucracy and weather telegraphy that allows government weather forecasters to make short-term forecasts, which is really just a projection of 
the current weather conditions 24 hours ahead in time, and of course, from west to east. So during the Gilded Age, there's a transition, as I understand it, from what might be characterized as a sort of folk methodology of weather forecasting. Is that fair? Consisting of almanacs, and you mentioned weather proverbs and weather prophets, to something more empirical? I think there's a tension, and of course, government weather scientists like to imagine that there was an in, indeed a transition and that they could teach people to abandon their longstanding faith in almanacs and other weather signs, in a sense, to let go of superstition and embrace science and empiricism. But what I think is so interesting and really fun about this history is that it didn't work out that way. And so the federal government, our first National Weather Service, had to really teach people to accept short-term forecasts and trust in the authority of a new government science, but at the same time compete with these wildly popular and really ubiquitous long-range weather forecasters and people who were selling all different types of forecasts that they themselves produced. And so debates over whose methods were more scientific, whose methods were more authoritative, whose methods were more objective, really come to the fore in this period. And as you know, if you wander through the grocery store, you'll find the farmer's almanac is for sale at the checkout counter. And so there are ways in which we still have not really abandoned the almanac tradition and much longer history of ways of knowing the weather. Although, of course, most of us still check our government weather forecast or AccuWeather or something like that on, on a daily basis. So I think there is this kind of epistemic compromise between the science and empiricism of National Weather Services and then these other ways that sometimes people call vernacular or folk ways of knowing the weather. What a fascinating dilemma that creates for those state weather scientists who, on the one hand, want to promote the objectivity and reliability of their forecasting, but at the end of the day are still working in a science that is imperfect. Mm -hmm. Weather predictions necessarily include a degree of error, and it's often the case, as we all know, that meteorologists are wrong. Mm -hmm. And yet, as you've led me to understand, the U.S. Army Signal Service and the Weather Bureau in the Gilded Age very much wanted citizens to put faith in the forecasts that they were making and put down the almanacs on which they'd long depended. I think you're really right in that one of the challenges for meteorologists and weather forecasters then as now is how to communicate the uncertainty that really is inherent in weather forecasting. And although we've really become accustomed to probabilistic weather forecasts in our 21st century moment, for example, looking at a forecast and understanding what 40% chance of rain means, this kind of probabilistic weather forecast didn't exist in the late 19th century. And so debates over whose forecast was right or whose was wrong, I think were much more pitched than they are now. We take for granted that weather forecasts are sometimes right and sometimes wrong, and we no longer really expect, I think, the kind of predictive certainty that government forecasters promised in the Gilded Age and some people came to expect. 
Jamie, you've indicated that the sort of probabilistic weather forecasting that we know today didn't exist in the late 19th century. And I'm wondering if you could say a little bit more about how the weather was coming to be forecast by federal agencies, uh, specifically the U.S. Army Signal Service and the Weather Bureau. You mentioned telegraph. What were their methods for collecting weather information and relaying them to the public? Sure. Essentially, the weather forecasting project of the late 19th century depended upon a network of trained observers. And so initially, these were members of the signal service, also volunteers who were interested in weather observations. And they were trained to make synchronous weather observations. So at the same time every day, say 7.35 a.m., 11.35 a.m., 5.35 p.m., something like that, each observer would take basic observations of surface conditions. So temperature, barometric pressure, precipitation, and then encode that data into a telegraphic cipher and send it to the central forecasting office in Washington, D.C. So it was a a decentralized network of observers that then gathered data in this kind of crowdsourcing project, sent it to the central node of the network in Washington, D.C., where the chief forecaster and clerks would map all of the data that they had received and then essentially project the current surface conditions 24 hours ahead in time and also project them geographically in space because weather patterns generally move from west to east across the United States. And so none of this weather forecasting was probabilistic. It was not theoretical in that our models of atmospheric meteorology and computational meteorology, weather fronts. I mean, all of this was still in the the future of meteorology. And, And so this was really very much a project of bureaucracy and technology and trained observers projecting surface conditions forward in time and eastward in space. Jamie, your article is not concerned merely with predicting the weather, but with commercializing it. What did businesses and advertisers stand to gain from attention to weather? In this period, many businesses and advertisers then, as well as now, tried to link particular products to people's awareness of the weather. So, for example, a company selling raincoats might invoke a rainstorm or people selling fuel might invoke a cold wave to convince people to place an order of coal. So businesses and advertisers tried to convince consumers that in order to be prepared for future weather conditions, they needed to buy a product in the present. I'm imagining a grocery store in Florida warning customers of hurricanes so that they will clear the shelves of all the stock. Exactly. Can you offer our listeners some more specific examples from your essay? Sure. In the 1890s, government weather officials were quite upset to find that there was a storekeeper in Cleveland who had put up a sign in his window telling people to get their umbrellas repaired because the Weather Bureau had predicted four weeks of rain. And of course, the Weather Bureau at that point would not have made such a long range weather forecast, but they were also concerned that this storekeeper was essentially profiting on government weather science and and using the Weather Bureau as fodder for his own marketing. 
other businesses and advertisers in this period also used weather forecasts just to make a fun or playful ad. And one of my favorite examples from the archive was an ad that went up on a streetcar in Detroit, Michigan, and it was created by the Crystal Domino Sugar Company. And in big, bold letters, it said weather forecast for the next 24 hours and every day thereafter, clear, calm, and sunshiny domestic weather will rule where Crystal Domino Sugar is used. And of course, you can't guarantee perfectly sunshiny weather every day as long as you use Crystal Domino Sugar. So this is clearly a humorous marketing ploy, but government weather officials took it quite seriously nonetheless as a challenge to their own professional authority. Jamie, one of my favorite examples from your essay involves the Tornado Theater Company. Can you tell us more about the Tornado Theater Company and how they were using news of the weather? The Tornado Theater Company caused a great deal of disturbance across the Midwest when they published these bold posters that said, bulletin warning, a tornado is coming, and they had a big black flag on their posters. And many people in St. Louis believed that these were, in fact, issued by the federal government and believed that a tornado was coming, not just because the sign appeared so official, but because one of St. Louis's most famous long-range weather forecasters, uh, a man named Earl Hicks, had actually predicted in his own almanac that there would be what he called a storm period and very active disturbances in early March of 1897, which is when these tornado theater company advertisements began to appear in St. Louis. And so the combination of these theater advertisements that looked like official forecasts with people's knowledge of Earl Hicks and what he had predicted for that month really created widespread panic that was covered in the local newspaper. Schools were closing early. People were quite afraid of a tornado that never actually formed. And the theater company manager, of course, was quite gleeful that his advertising campaign had worked so well. And so the federal government spent quite a bit of time and resources trying to chase down the tornado theater company who would periodically move from place to place, from state to state across the Midwest. You demonstrate in your article that the prospect of tornado generated real panic in this era. If I understand correctly, government forecasters were prohibited from using the word tornado until 1938? That's exactly right. And although government weather forecasters were doing research into tornado prediction in the mid-1880s, they were forbidden from actually using the word tornado in their forecast for fear that the panic would be far more widespread than the actual path of the tornado itself. And It wasn't until 1938 that in the United States, government forecasters were allowed to use the word tornado. And this really fits into a broader kind of institutional culture in the Weather Bureau in which forecasters were discouraged from making predictions that might go out on a limb or cause undue alarm or panic. And so the government weather forecasters really had a kind of conservative approach to weather forecasting, not just in their reluctance to make long range predictions, but also in the language and the vocabulary that they use to warn people of hazards. Jamie, several pages of your article are devoted to the Dr. Miles Medical Company. Who was Dr. Miles and what sort of mischief was he up to? 
Yes. Dr. Miles was a famous patent medicine manufacturer in the late 19th century, and they sold a range of products, but most famous was Nervine. It was a bromide sedative that was available for a wide range of nervous disorders that was sold really right up in, up until the 1960s. But I think more people will be familiar with Dr. Miles through Alka-Seltzer or Flintstone's children's vitamins. So if you have either of those products in your home, you have a product that was invented by Dr. Miles. And Dr. Miles himself was Franklin Miles. He was a physician from Chicago who operated a, a tremendously profitable mail-order patent medicine dispensary. So this was no ordinary quack. He wasn't. And although patent medicine manufacturers were proliferating, Dr. Miles was quite different in the sense that he was also a weather observer. And part of my article is about how Dr. Miles used his weather almanac as a way to advertise his series of remedies. So each month in his weather almanac, he would offer a weather forecast and directly connect it to a particular product that would be appropriate for that season or whatever kind of illnesses he correlated with the weather forecast. And so I should say too, that there were certainly many patent medicine almanacs and patent medicine almanacs were really ubiquitous, published by the tens of millions in the United States in this period. And so the patent medicine almanac as a form of advertising was not new, but what was different about Dr. Miles was that he had a weather observation station on top of his factory in Elkhart, Indiana. And so he made the same types of weather observations that government observers were also making. And so Dr. Miles was both a threat to the federal government because he was, in a sense, trading on their authority and publishing an almanac that had government weather signals on the front, and it was initially called the U.S. Weather Almanac. But at the same time, they also used his data in their weather reporting network and relied on him and collaborated with him. So he was both a threat to the federal government's weather service, but also a collaborator and a cooperative observer. Now, for a time, the United States government believed that Miles's use of weather to market his patent medicines was fraudulent or constituted illegal behavior. How did it intervene and why did it believe so in the first place? Dr. Miles was under scrutiny by the federal government really for two reasons because they thought he was a fraud and also because they thought he was a counterfeiter. What the federal government understood to be fraudulent weather forecasting was long-range predictions. And Dr. Miles was offering a year's worth of weather forecast in his almanac. He would make long-range monthly forecasts for each month of the year so that he could connect each month to a particular product that he wanted people to buy. But because of the cover of his almanac, which had the storm warning flags that were used by the Signal Service and then the Weather Bureau. And because the title was U.S. Weather Almanac, he ran afoul of this counterfeiting statute first created in 1894 that made it a misdemeanor to imitate or copy the government weather forecast and pass them off as official. And so they used the counterfeiting law to pursue Dr. Miles. But what bothered 
government weather officials even more was the fact that he was making long-range forecasts. And so Dr. Miles ended up having to pay a fine and agree not to make long-range weather forecasts anymore, but ultimately returned to that practice because his readers demanded the long-range forecast and that there, there was throughout this period, a a great demand for long-range weather forecasts, as there is now, by people who need to do long-range planning beyond just 24 or 48 hours. And so Dr. Miles was one of only two people who was successfully prosecuted under this counterfeiting law, although the Weather Bureau pursued on the order of 50 different cases that I've uncovered from the archives. Only two were prosecuted, and Dr. Miles was the most high-profile So the United States government directed Dr. Miles to separate his long-term weather forecasting from his attempt to market these products. And though he complied, he ultimately returned to the publication of Almanac specifically because his readers demanded them. Is that correct? That's correct. And he, he published his almanac every single year between 1902 and 1942. He changed the title from U.S. Weather Almanac to Dr. Miles' New Weather Almanac. So he took out the U.S. and he also added a bit of a disclaimer on the front of his almanac that stated weather forecast flags and storm warnings of the U.S. Weather Bureau. So that was sufficient to escape charges of counterfeiting. But the long-range forecasts were, of course, the hinge on which his whole advertising almanac worked because he needed to correlate a specific product for each month with that month's weather forecast. And so he did return to making those long-range forecasts in his almanac. Jamie, your article is full of rich material, such as those on Dr. Miles. What was the archive to which you alluded a moment ago? Sure. Most of the archival work I did for this article was at the National Archives in College Park, where the records of the U.S. Weather Bureau had a group of files on counterfeit weather forecasts. I also visited the Warshaw Collection of Business Americana at the Smithsonian, the New York Historical Society. But I was surprised and delighted to discover that eBay, the online marketplace, was also an incredibly rich archive. And the studying the ephemera of economic life, essentially that you know p- people have these almanacs and then they throw them away along with trade cards and and other kinds of calendars and advertisements has really, you know, led me to think differently about eBay as an archive itself. And although these almanacs were so numerous and In 1907, the Dr. Miles Company claimed that they published 10 million of them. In many ways, because they are ephemera, uh, they've disappeared. But I've been able to find nearly a complete run of the almanacs from 1902 to 1942 on eBay. And no doubt people are cleaning out their relatives' houses or, you know, finding a collection of almanacs in the attic and putting them on eBay along with a whole range of other Dr. Miles products. And so there is this fascinating market for patent medicine ephemera um, and weather-related advertising on eBay. One of the the unforeseen pleasures of researching this article is that I've been able to you know, accumulate a small collection of Dr. Miles ephemera myself, thanks to what I've been able to find on eBay. A small collection, Jamie? 
It grows by the month. And so, yes, we have some Dr. Miles bottles of Nervine and other types of ephemera uh, scattered throughout the house. Jamie, you published a book last year, Looking Forward, Prediction and Uncertainty in Modern America. Will you tell us about it? Sure. That book looks at weather forecasting as part of a broader culture of prediction in the late 19th and early 20th century United States. And it looks at crop forecasting, weather forecasting, market forecasting, predictions about the economic future, and also the predictions of fortune tellers as part of a broader culture of prediction in which institutions and individuals all grappled with what forecasts could actually do, what they meant, and what their value was. And the sort of ironic trajectory of the book is that more ostensibly scientific methods for predicting the future didn't actually lead to greater confidence in this kind of predictive certainty, but rather helped Americans of all kinds really learn to grapple with uncertainty and to understand that perhaps the fundamental aspect of forecasting is an uncertain future itself. And so it's a story about how people, through their use of forecasts, came to understand the future as predictably unpredictable. That sounds wonderful. Are advertisers still using weather forecasts today the way that they did in the late 1900s? Indeed, they are. And and since the holiday season is on us, I opened my email the other day to find an ad from an outdoor clothing retailer trying to sell me rain gear. And the subject line was rain in the forecast. So what? And these types of ads are so ubiquitous and unremarkable, especially in our advertising saturated digital environment. And it's entirely expected, perhaps, that your web browser will show you ads for rain boots or, you know, a sunny vacation that's connected to your local forecast. But what is surprising to me is just how much weather-related advertising has become normalized in 20th and 21st century consumer culture. And I think most people don't realize that behind these seemingly unremarkable ads on our smartphones and our web browsers is a much more controversial and complicated history in which it was certainly not a foregone conclusion that weather-related marketing would become legal and an accepted part of consumer culture. Reading your article reminded me, Jamie, that like you, I lived in Boston for several years, and almost every winter it seemed that the weather forecasts were especially, perhaps unnecessarily dire. Local meteorologists would warn against these massive snowfalls that didn't often materialize, and so I developed this theory that the weather announcers were in cahoots with the New England ski industry, that by predicting big snowfalls, they were ginning up business for the slopes. Do you think there's any merit to my conspiratorial thinking, or should I just take off my tinfoil hat? I've often thought similar things myself, and I will say that depending on where you get your weather forecast, you may get one that's more dire and more conservative. And so even though other private outlets like Weather Channel and AccuWeather use the data that is produced by the federal government, they certainly put their own spin on it. So of course, grocery stores and ski resorts have everything to benefit from these dire forecasts. And of course, the question of whether or not it will snow and how much also creates havoc for people who 
who are running schools and people who have to send their children to school. And I've actually discovered, thanks to my 12-year-old son, that there is an app that will predict whether or not your school will have a snow day tomorrow. And so you put in your zip code and you put in the number of snow days you've had so far, and it will calculate according to some kind of algorithm, combining your local forecast with the relative conservatism or not of your school superintendent, (laughs) and will tell you whether or not you need to do your homework because whether you'll have math class tomorrow or not. I imagine there's a school board out there pulling its hair for just that very reason. (laughs) Has this research transformed you into a weather junkie? Are you a storm chaser? I'm so risk averse. I think one of the things that has happened to me in this process of studying forecasting and predictability is I've become so attuned to risk and hazard that I take seriously, perhaps too seriously, every type of storm warning. And so I'm the sort of the opposite of the storm chaser. And I like to observe from within the safety and relative comfort of my home. This has been the Journal of American History podcast for the winter of 2018 and 19. Our guest has been Dr. Jamie Petruska, Associate Professor of History at Rutgers, New Brunswick. Jamie's article, A Tornado is Coming, Counterfeiting and Commercializing Weather Forecasts from the Gilded Age to the New Era, appears in the December 2018 issue of the Journal of American History. Thank you so much, Jamie. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. It was such a pleasure. 